Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolishness, talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what, what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, thank you so much for your Son who you sent on the cross, Lord. Uh, so that we may die to ourselves and be born again, Lord. Still our hearts this morning uh, so that we would hear and know and apply the things uh, that you have to share with us, Lord, in Ephesians. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. All right, we're going to begin this morning with a simple little exercise, one I'm sure you've all participated in before called word association. So I'm going to give you an idea, and you're going to tell me some words associated with this idea, this thing, this concept. Florida Gators. Huh? Winners. What else? Chomp, chomp. What else? Tebow. What else? Swamp. That's all you have to say. That's all, that's all you can come up with for your entire university. Orange and blue. All right. Now let's go to the other side. Let's try something else. Georgia Bulldogs. All right. Boo, hiss, yuck. All right. Now I'm going to give you another word, and I want to tell you if it's more, tell me if it's more Florida Gators or Georgia Bulldogs. Obedience. It's more Georgia Bulldogs, right? 
It feels more like, uh, people don't like to obey. People don't like, huh? Huh? George. <laughs> Most of us don't like this word, obedience. We don't like the words rules, commands, statutes, and precepts. We don't like to be made to obey, do we? Does anybody here like to be made to obey? No. You can just ask any of my children. None of them like to be made to obey. And so today we're going we're to talk about obedience as one, of our, as one of the main subjects today. And I think part of the reason we don't like the word obedience, we don't really like the concept obedience, why many times it can feel very heavy and very weighty, is because uh, there's one of three things at play. And one of those is our own experience being made to obey. If we look over the course of our lives, we can... I'm sure relate back to either our parents or a boss or a teacher, some authority figure standing over us, yelling at us in some way, shape, or form, trying to make us obey and conform our will to theirs. Yes? You've had this experience. Does any of us like this experience? No. A second thing at play when it comes to the call to obedience is our own sin nature gets in the way. Our own resistance to things that are right and good and holy and not wanting to do what we know we ought to do. And then when you add to that our current cultural narrative that says we should be autonomous, we should be individuals, we should be authentic, and we should be totally free, answering to no one. When you put these three things together of our experience, our sin nature, and our cultural narrative, we get this explosive cocktail when someone comes to us and tells us that we must obey. And it's why we must be keenly aware of, of these three things that are in a part of our experience, a part of our sin nature, and a part of our cultural narrative. We must be aware that this is always running in the background of our minds and our hearts and our lives when we come to passages of Scripture that deliver to us commands of things we should not do and commands of things that we should do. In the 21 verses that were just read for us this morning, as I studied this, I noticed that either directly or indirectly stated, there are eight negative commands, eight things that we are told as followers of Jesus we should not do, but yet there are 13 positive commands of things we are told to do. Now, one time I got really bored when I was a pastor in Seattle, and I decided to write down every single command I could find in the New Testament. And after about a week of writing down every single one, I came up with 10 pages single-spaced, okay, fully typed out. So if you want to know how many things you are told to do just in the New Testament alone, 
I have 10 pages worth that I will gladly send you at any point in time if you ever feel you have measured up and met all the things that we are told and commanded to do in just the New Testament alone. And when we come to these ideas, when we come to these commands, many times they can feel very heavy, they can feel very weighty, and they can feel very burdensome. And because of our past experience, because of our sin nature, because of our, our cultural narrative, God can seem like this overbearing, repressive, cosmic killjoy who's just trying to take all of the fun from us. But what I want to stress to us today as we look at obedience to God's commands is that every single one of God's commands is intended for our joy. That everything that we are told in Scripture not to do and everything that we are told to do has as its end to produce joy in the life of the believer. And I want to say this is, this is something that, again, we don't think of joy. That when we think of obedience, when we think of having to obey or being told to obey, the first thought in our mind is like, yay, Right? We don't associate joy with this at all, but yet Jesus says the entire purpose of his commands is to produce joy in us. So why is there this massive disconnect between us and what Jesus says these commands are intended to produce? And so when we think about God's commands, we need to remember these five things. We need to remember that all of God's commands reflect His nature. They reflect His character. They are for human flourishing. They are for your good, and they are for your joy. And, and I just want you to grasp how the psalmist of Psalm 119 feels about God's rules, about God's commands, and about His statutes statutes and, and his precepts. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 119. If not, you can look up on the screen. But just, and I, and I want you to try and feel the emotion with which this guy is writing these words. I'm going to read to you just 16 verses. He goes on for 176 verses like a lovesick puppy dog over the law over the rules of God and over the commands of God. Just listen to, listen to what he says. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
when I was looking at this this week, I was like, like, I feel like he's in love with a woman. Like in verses 15 and 16, like, like I remember when I first met my wife, and I still know the longing affection that I look for my, he's like, hey, I will meditate on your precepts. I find myself still to this day madly in love with my wife, meditating on her precepts. All right? I find my, myself constantly fixing my eyes on my wife and who she is, that I delight in who she is, and I don't want to forget a single thing about her. And so for 176 verses, he goes on and on and on about how much he is in love with the rules and the commands and the statutes of God. And so for the last few weeks as I've been studying this, I'm like, where, where is this in my life? Where is this in our lives that, that when we come up to the words of God, to the commands of God, to, to the rules of God, why do we not feel this joy? Why are our hearts not overflowing in joy, you know, screaming, yes, Lord, exactly. That's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I need. I am eager and looking forward to doing exactly what it is you are calling me to do. And I think it's because we are so stained and tarnished by our own bad experience, by our own sin nature, and by our own cultural narrative that we have missed what is to be found in the word of God and his commandments that he wants everything in all of his commandments and all of his rules to be for our joy. And I want to say this, this message is vitally important, not just for you. But it's vitally important for the people around you. It's vitally important for the person that many of you will one day marry. It's vital for the children that many of you will one day have. Because one day you will be over these little beings running around in your house. And will you be that overbearing, repressive, screaming and yelling at them when they disobey? Or will you teach them that God's word and God's commands are this beautiful thing of joy that are safeguards in their life? I mean, the, the, the ripples of this message and the ripples of this topic about finding joy in the commandments of God are so far beyond just you because they will affect every person that you interact with for the rest of your life. And I think one of the great things that we have lost in Christianity as followers of Jesus is this belief that God intends all things for our joy. And that when God created the world, He created it solely for the joy and pleasure of human beings to, to, to just relish in His glory forever and ever. And so I, I want to take us all the way back to the very beginning before we get into Ephesians 5. In God's creation of the world. Because I, I told you that all of God's commands reflect His nature and His character. They're for human flourishing. They're for your good and they're for your joy. But I want you to see this in the pages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 Look at the creation account. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, I don't know what you think about God. I don't know what your concept is of God. But when I look at God through the lens of his creation, I can't help but be overwhelmed with the beauty and the majesty and the joy that God intended for his creation. I mean, he created a world that you could run around outside in all day naked and never get a sunburn, right? Like the, you could go to sleep at night. You didn't need covers at night to go to sleep. I don't know about you, but I'm glad this heat has finally broken. Anybody else? Anybody happy with today? Yes, yes, yes. Not that it matters. This is the first time I've had on a pair of blue jeans in five months, okay? Because I will not wear jeans when it's hot. Why? And so God created this world, this perfect weather. And like, I'm obsessed with good weather, okay? And like, it, 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 he created this amazing world. And he created this world where man and woman were just running around naked without a care in the entire world. They got to watch the animals splash and play and have fun. And... Like, all the food was ready made for them, right? Like, it was all there for them. Now, I don't know about you, but, like, that sounds like my idea of a good time, okay? And that sounds to me like a good God who has created all of these things for man and woman to enjoy. Yes, they had to work the ground as he had told them, but this was all for their joy. So when we talk about God and we talk about His commands, we have to understand this is the character and nature of God as He intended us to be. And in all of this beauty and all of this, you know, the, the, the beautiful water, the beautiful trees, the flowers in full bloom, the smells and the aromas in the air, if you can just try and grasp what paradise would be like in this moment and how good and great and serene and beautiful it would be, You've got to say, in all of this, he gives them one thing not to do. One thing. I mean, everything is theirs. The entire world and its enjoyment is there. And it's, hey, don't eat from that one tree. That's it. So see, God is not restrictive. He is not oppressive. He is not a, a, some cosmic killjoy wanting to take all of our fun, fun from us. And so he says in verse, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." 
So not only did he tell them, like, hey, not to, but he told them, like, what the consequence would be. So all of this Edenic paradise before them, as contracted with, you will get old and die. And don't miss this next part in Ephesians, I mean, Genesis chapter 3. How cunning and scheming and deceiving must Satan be that with one question, he could convince Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. In the middle of all this beauty and all this glory and all of this paradise, with one question, he could make them question the goodness of God. How God intended everything for their joy. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And it's still the great question that's being asked today, isn't it? By everyone. Does the Bible really say? Oh, there's, there's, there's no way the Bible that actually means that. Many people today either look at God as this overbearing, oppressive killjoy, this dictator who stands over us wanting to put his thumb on us, or they look at him as kind of this out-of-touch dad who wears socks and sandals in the summertime, wears shorts that don't quite fit right, a Hawaiian shirt, sunscreen on his nose, glasses, and a wide-brim hat, right? That he's just this out-of-touch dad. He doesn't know what's going on, that he's just not up with the times. He's not hip and he's not cool and he doesn't understand today's age. And most people will view God in one of those two ways, as overbearing or just out of touch. And that's, and that's why we have to be ready when people say to us, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And I'll just point out to you, this is just one little bonus thing. When God first comes to them, he does not say to them, what have you done? What does he say? Where are you? Where are you? That even in their rebellion against him, he did not come at them screaming and yelling. But his concern was for the personal nature of their relationship. And he says, where are you, my child? That's the nature of God. That's the character of God. That's the goodness of God that pursues us and chases us down every time we run from him. Every command of God is for his glory and for your joy. I pray that we can see that in today's passage 
in Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Now, I'm not going to go back through the entire passage. I'm going to encourage you this week to spend time each and every day meditating and reading through Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 and the 21 commandments that you see there. But I have up on the screen, if it's going to cooperate with us this morning, here here are the highlighted um, negative commands, the eight negative commands, things we're told not to do in Scripture. So number one is don't be sexually immoral. Two is don't be impure. Three, don't covet. Four, no filthiness, foolish talk, nor crude joking. Do not become partners with the sons of disobedience. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Do not be foolish. Don't get drunk with wine. So a lot of these overlap with one another. They intersect with one another. But I'll pull out kind of the two biggest that I assume are still kind of the major topics and issues in college life, if, if life hasn't changed that much since I was in college 20 years ago. Um, don't be sexually immoral and don't get drunk with wine, okay? Th- these will be the bookends, okay? Everything else is in between. I think it will kind of take care of itself. Um, don't be sexually immoral. Um, I've lived a decent amount of life. I've pastored a lot of people over many years. And um, everybody always wants to know, just like, Okay, what is this sexually immoral thing? We hear lots of talk about it. What can I do? What can't I do? Where's the line? How close can I get to the line without crossing the line? Just so you know, that is always a terrible idea. All right? It's always like saying, hey, look, um, how close can I get to the edge of this cliff without falling off? Okay? You know, what does it take? It takes one little gust of wind and... You plummet to your death, right? No, the smart person says, "Mm, you know, as long as I'm 50 feet away from the edge of that cliff, I don't even have to worry about losing my life and cracking my skull on the rocks, okay? So so let me just kind of give you, um, again, God's intention that he intends for maximum joy for human beings, okay? Sexual morality is this. It is one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage having as much fun as they want. Okay? One man, one woman, covenant of marriage. Anything outside of one man, one woman, the covenant of marriage. So whether that's single or three plus, you're outside the bounds of what Scripture intends. Because God has clearly expressed, he has designed this thing called sex to be fully expressed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And within that, like the Garden of Eden, there's a lot of freedom, a lot of things that can be done. And again, people want to ask all those questions. You can ask all those questions next week when we talk about marriage. And then we have the Q&A about dating, marriage, and sex. And just so you know, we put that in order on purpose. All right? Dating, marriage, sex. All right? And we can just skip the dating and we can just go to marriage and sex. All right? I proposed on the first date. All right? It can be done and you can get married really fast. And people are going, No, he didn't. Yes, I did. Okay? So when you find the right one, you will just know you propose. And if you're like me, you have to get them to say yes before they figure you out and will say no, okay? So do it as quickly as possible. 
That's just my little life lesson to you guys, okay? So, um, there is an order to this whole thing. Now, so, <clears throat> let me just say, you know, from, from one who was highly sexually immoral before I became a Christian. I became a Christian right before I graduated college, okay? Graduated in June of 99, became a believer in February of 99, wasn't looking for it, wasn't asking for it. So anything, I mean, I, I, lots of stories, all right? Let me also say on the other side, my wife was in a, an abusive relationship for six years with a guy that she shouldn't have been with in high school and college, okay? So we had carried a lot of sexually immoral baggage into our marriage, but yet by doing things court God's way, we now have a marriage that is um, wonderful in that department, okay? It, the more there are issues there, more things have to be worked through and fought through. But even if you're a true, weight, true love weights kind of person, all right, and you sign the covenant and you sign the pledge and all those things, okay, that does not mean like, oh, we're just going to get married and it's, and it's all going to work, okay? There, there is a reason that sex is incredibly difficult, no matter whether you've been sexually pure or sexually unpure before you get married. And here's why. Because, and the quote's up on the screen. Oh, there it is. Every human being's greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. Okay? Now, the fact that you aren't writing this down really bothers me. Okay? Because this is the key to every human being that you meet. All right? And again, you're still not writing it down. I'm bothered by this. So, every human being's greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. As I told you a few weeks ago when I preached... I heard a pastor say, the number one question that every human being is asking themselves and never, they never stop asking is, am I good enough? And because they know and don't feel good enough, what they want from you as another human being is to fully know them and to fully love them. That's why we put on all of these great fronts when we go out on first dates, right? I mean, we go out on these first few dates. I mean, guys, we go over the top. We go to nice restaurants. We dress up nice. We, you know, we make ourselves as presentable as possible because we don't want to be rejected. But yet, once you peek behind the curtain, right? I mean, like, over time, it all just starts to fade because we don't want to put those fronts up for people anymore. And once we get past all of this pretense, we, we actually want to be fully known and fully loved. I mean, you want to know that this other human being fully loves you for who you are. For all the things that you do that are bad and that are wrong and are stinky and are smelly and are gross. I mean... You know, we cover a lot of this stuff up as human beings, right? I mean, we just cover this up because, you know, in America, like, we just want to put, in, put on all this face and all this pretense of covering everything up. But once you start living with another human being, like, you see things that, you know, you didn't want to see, things you didn't think you would see, smells you didn't want to smell, and you want to know that in spite, see, all the married people are going, mm, you know, and, and it's usually the women. The women are always laughing like, 
oh my gosh, like when I was a little girl and I was, had this, fan, this fairy tale in my mind of what mar- you know, wedding and marriage was going to be like, like I had no, I, you know, it, it never was that he would walk by me on a regular basis and intentionally fart on me as he walked by, okay? That's not in any girl's picture of her head, right? But yet guy, <laughs> the guy's like, mm, it's funny, <laughs> so yeah, that is not in the female brain, and so and for for a guy, it's like, hey, she still loves me, like I do that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Dutch oven. You guys know what Dutch oven is, <laughs> right? When you get married, you fart under the covers, takes a little time, comes up, <laughs> and she still loves me. Every day. <laughs> that was not in the notes. <laughs> and, and nor did I get any permission to share that. All right? So I will pay for that later. <laughs> um, but it is. But it's like the fact that she fully knows me and fully loves me. Like that's what you're looking for in a spouse. That's what you're looking for. And that's why sexual intimacy is such a big deal because for every person that you are with and that you engage with that, that then rejects you, it just notches a scar on your soul that can be overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit and through, through an incredible pursuing love of God and your spouse, but that they are, they are incredible wounds to overcome. But also know that every human being's greatest desire is to be fully known and to be fully loved, but also their greatest fear is to be known and rejected. All right? And that's why we're always trying to impress people. Because we do not want to be rejected. And so just, just think about this for a moment. Because I, I don't want to go too deep into this because we're going to talk a lot about it next week um, in the marriage sermon and in the Q&A. Again, I'll, I will answer any question you have. I've done these before. Um, I... I I, I'm not easily embarrassed. I've never been embarrassed, so fire away. I will answer your questions. Um, the other one I would say is um, a big one. Don't get drunk with wine. Um, just so you know, that also includes beer, liquor, any other foreign substance. You might be trying to get around. i got to work around. It just said wine. Beer and liquor not included. Um, so just the thing, look. Um, like, if you're of age... In this country, whether you think the, the age laws are stupid or not, and because you can vote, you will drink. The Bible says obey the laws of the land. If you're not 21, don't drink. If you are, you are sinning against God because you're not obeying the laws of the land. If you have a beer, you can have a beer to the glory of God. There's no issue, there's no issue with that. But if you're going, oh, well, what's getting drunk? What's not getting drunk? Like, I was almost there, but I wasn't quite there. You're too close to the line. At that point, you're just, you're just way too close to the line. Like, if you, can, if you can have one beer and stop, then you're probably good. If you can have two beers over a normal period of time, you're probably pretty good. If, if you've got to have more than two beers to have a good time, then that's becoming an idol for you. Let's just say it, say it that way. And so, don't get drunk. No good decision has ever been made while drunk. All right? There, there's a reason why it says, further down the passage, be filled with the Spirit. And that's why the reason why they call liquor spirits, right? They yesterday ride in the car with my daughter. Daddy, what's it say beer, liquor, spirits thing on the sign over there? Oh, you know, and then had to explain it. Because you're filled with the spirit. You're filled with the spirits. It takes over control of you, and it changes how you act. 
It's amazing how courageous men get when they've had a few beers in them. Okay, so don't get drunk with wine. So if you got any questions about that, I'll gladly answer that one as well. Okay, but there's eight negative commandments here, but there's also 13 positive commandments. Look at what he says here in the scripture. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Be thankful. Walk as children of the light. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Look carefully at how you walk. Make the best use of the time. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, just so you know, see, this is for the singers and the non-singers in the room, right? The singing people who have good voices, they get to sing. The ones like me who can't sing, you make melody with your heart, okay? And just move your lips along with it, okay? So, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. No, if you can't sing at all, you sing with all you got to Jesus, okay? Because he's the only one that should be listening. Again, fully known, fully loved, all right? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I will say something about the positive and the negative commands. Um, I, I'm sure with just the two big ones we talked about in the negative, I've stepped on toes here. Um, you find yourself, ooh, yeah, I sin there, I sin there, I sin there, I sin there, I sin there. And so we're always trying to figure out how to overcome, overcome these sins. Uh, and usually... We spend most of our time trying not to do those sins. What I would say is, from my own life and having counseled a lot of people, is by doing the positive things that you should do, focusing on doing positive things, if you obey God's positive commands, you will find yourselves naturally overcoming the negative commands that you're trying to avoid because you're empowered with the strength of the Holy Spirit as you're walking in obedience to what God is calling you to do. So therefore, you're being filled with the Spirit, you're given power through the Spirit, and those other things fade away. And, and, and I'll just say that on one level, as having as been a guy who has counseled tons of men on the issue of pornography, that I, for 10 years through high school and college, was a daily pornography user. And then once I became a follower of Jesus, like I have not looked at porn at all, not a single time in over 20 years. Okay? So like it's totally possible to get freedom from pornography. And dudes, I will just say this to you. I, I, I meant to say it all ago and I forgot. I will say this to you. That whole thing about fully known and fully loved, there is, n there are, I'll say, don't want to say nothing. There's almost nothing that you can do that is more damaging to your wife than look at pornography. Because the moment you do that, you have rejected her and you have said she is not enough and that some other woman is. And I am telling you, it, it is the most awful conversation I have with couples all the time. Because it is, it is about the most damaging thing you can do to your wife. Because what you're saying is, even though I fully know you, there is something else I long for and love more than you in that moment. And just understand, in that moment when you look at pornography, you are saying to your wife, I love this thing more than you. You just are. You're also exploiting little girls being trafficked for sex around the world. Every time you click on that link, you enable the profit of some man to traffic some little girl around the world. Just keep that in your mind every time you click on that link, every time you look at it. 
by obeying the positive commands, we can overcome the things that torment our soul and tempt us. And look at what it says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. This is really the key to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. To Ephesians 5, it's verses 1 and 2. If you have never uh, memorized these two verses, these are two I would tell you you should put in your back pocket and keep with you all the time. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if you want to know what your life should look like as the everyday church as you leave here and go from here, here, here is a great principle to follow, a great commandment to follow. Be imitators of God as beloved children. See how it's rooted in our identity? What have we been talking about for, la- for all semester? Identity, identity, identity. In Christ, union with Christ, over and over and over. Because of your identity as beloved children, be imitators of Daddy. Be imitators of big brother Jesus and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now ask yourself, how how does that commandment feel, all right? Like we know if you've been sexually immoral and I've stepped on your toes, we know that one feels heavy and weighty. But what about this positive one? To... To imitate Jesus, to be like dad, to be like big brother, to offer your life as a sacrifice just the way Jesus did. With all that you've got going on in your life right now, with all of your classes, with all of your job, with all your family stuff, with everything you've got going on, does, does that commandment from God, does that feel weighty to you? Does that feel burdensome to you? Or are you like ready as soon as the sermon is over with to go run around, scream and shout because you got some joy, 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 joy down in your heart from this commandment? All right, I think I have my answer, okay? So we have to understand though, and again, you, you got to take, take scripture at face value. Look at what 1 John 5, 3 says. John, the beloved apostle, in chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So if the commandment feels burdensome to us as followers of Jesus, is the problem with the commandment or the problem with us? Is this what you do to your professors? Is this what you like to be a professor? Like, ask your students questions, and they just, I mean, I thought that was pretty easy. Like, I read the answer, and then I asked the question. Uh, all right, right, okay. So, let's try this one more time, children, all right? If the commandment feels burden, is the problem with the commandment or the problem with us? All right, so good, so good. You all get an A for improvement, all right? So, yes, the, the, the problem is with us. That there, there's something that we are not seeing. There's something we are not understanding. There's something not connecting with us. Because look what Jesus also says in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. I wish somebody would get that devil out of that TV and out of that cable. <clears throat> as the Father has loved me. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, 
So I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, if you want to read the previous 1 through 8 there, on through 17, you will see this is all about commandments. This is all about abiding in Jesus, abiding in Him, staying connected to Him. And the entire intention of obeying God's commandments is so that your joy may be full. And let me tell you, there are going to come times in your life when you are going to need this deep reservoir of joy, when the storms Come and crash against your soul. You are going to need a very deep reservoir to overcome what the enemy, what the world, and what the flesh come at you with to pull from this deep, deep reservoir of joy. And you need to know that if you are lacking joy, and I'm not talking about happiness, okay? So just real quick, happiness, for today's purposes, we're just going to say surface level. We're going to say joy is really deep. So the first few feet of the water, happiness. Joy is this deep ocean, okay? Happiness is a swimming pool. Joy is an ocean. People are running around trying to satisfy themselves with happiness and with experience going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing and they find that it no longer satisfies. When there is this reservoir incredibly deep that we can pull from. And I I, I just won't want you to think of it this way because my goal when I speak to you, when I preach to you, when I interact with you in community group and, and one-on-one, the reason we moved all the way from Seattle to here to work with college students is that, and grad students and young adults and whoever's in here, is to equip you for life. I want you to do life well. I am called to equip people to do life well according to how God wants them to live. And I want to equip you to have joy. And I'm telling you the only way to do that is to build it upon the commands of Jesus. Build your life upon the commands of Jesus. So many people who call themselves Christians... They, they lay this foundation, oh, I have Jesus, and they just go do life however they want to. And they find themselves brutally exposed to the elements when the storms of life hit. But yet, for those of us who build our lives, and it, and it takes something to build a life, right? I mean, it takes work to build a marriage, to build a family, to, to, to build a home. I mean, th- think about these peaceful moments. Th- think about... Think about the moment in your home where you feel that all is right in the world. All right? Cup of coffee. Good book. 
sleeping in on Saturday morning, right? Being able to open up all the windows and doors in your house, just the breeze blowing, when everything feels right. Now, we don't think about this very often, but what does it take to create those moments in our life? It's not just as simple as having a cup of coffee. It's not just as simple as, as sitting down in your home, right? Because a lot of things had to be built before to make that moment possible. Somebody had to lay that foundation of that property a long time ago. You had to go to work and pay money for that house. Someone had to come and install plumbing. Someone had to install electricity. Someone had to put up the wall. Someone had to put on the roof so that when the storm comes and it rains like crazy and it lightning and thunder and all that, you're not exposed to the elements. Why? Because you have spent time building life, building this house in such a way that it is strong and that it is sturdy, that it can withstand all the storms from the outside, still making those moments of joy possible no matter what is going on in the outside world. And you need to understand in the same way that your life is being built and your house is being built and everything that you come in contact with being built, you are building your soul and your life in such a way as to either build a house on the rock or to build a house on the sand. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in, his, in the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He says, the wise person does what? Okay, yeah, builds his house on the rock. What does the foolish person do? Right. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, commandments, rules, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not be them, like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so today, when you, when you leave here, and for every, every rest of your life, Jesus is the rock and the foundation to which you can build an incredible life, an incredible life of joy. But you have to build it according to his words. And that's why if you build your life according to his words, Satan, sin, and death will not be able to touch those incredible moments and deep reservoir of joy on the inside no matter how much it pounds against the roof, no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how loud the thunder is and how scary it may seem, it will never be able to touch that deep reservoir of joy. So when you come to God's commands, you have to ask yourself, are you building your life according to the commands of Jesus who says, I have given you these commands that your joy may be full? that being said, I'm going to ask the, the band to, to come back up. And as you know, we, we always do a, a, a time of response here, at least when I preach. And uh, so if you'll kill those, those lights. And um, 
and so there's, there's really two ways in which you can, you, you can come today. Um, there may be, you may find in that negative list, some sins that you've committed and that you need to confess and, and, and that you want to talk about and you want prayed about. So we will have uh, men and women at the front um, and a couple at the back, uh, whoever would like to, uh, t- you know, um, to go back there. But I'll ask Leah and Caitlin and uh, Jackie's up there. Kevin will be in the back. So, um, Laura, if you would also, for the, for the ladies. Um, but it's just a time to talk. But on the other hand, maybe you're like, no, I don't really, I'm good. I, I've stayed away from all those, you know. I, 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 I know the Southern Baptist rules. Don't drink, cuss, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. Um, um, you know, I'm good. I, I'm this good moral person. But again, you know, there's lots of good moral people who are um, in a really bad place right now. Jesus spoke about that a lot. But I want your joy to be overflowing. Because this is something you've got to fight for. I mean, you have to fight for joy in this life. And so if you want prayer about experiencing joy, then we want to pray with that for you as well. So for the first couple of minutes... You can just come up. I know it takes you guys a little bit of courage to start moving and going. Um, as soon as he starts singing, that's your key, that if you are a follower of Jesus and want to partake in communion, Christ's body that was broken and blood that was shed as the sacrifice for your sin, that fragrant offering that God accepts on our behalf, becoming our righteousness and giving us that righteousness, when he begins to sing, you can make him and take communion. Um, and wh- during that time of communion, you can continue in this time of prayer as well. So, Laura, if you would come up, and Leah and uh, Caitlin, Stephen, if you'd come up and help me with the guys. You want to come up? <laughs>